This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Are you in the market for fertiliser? Well, if you are, you will know that it's not easy to get your hands on what you need right now. Talking to a a good accumulator for big rural clients of fertiliser, those guys who locked in, and I'm talking locked in January or earlier for their winter fertiliser, are doing a lot better than those who are scrambling now to pick up because it's just not the product in the pipeline that merchants here, retailers here, and get it out to them. There are three main factors driving up the price of fertiliser and you will learn what they are after half past 12. And very shortly, Australia's largest milk cooperative is working on an animal-free milk product. We're very far advanced. We have product at froths, so you can make cappuccinos and that's one of the key things that um, you know, current plant-based milk people would sit there and say as a complaint of their product, A, the flavour and texture and the fact that you can't have a decent coffee with it. So we see that you know this product is doing all these things that others are still trying to, to replicate. Around the world, about $4 billion is being spent on developing and fine-tuning a milk product that doesn't come from an animal. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Richard Hudson will be along shortly with the state's rainfall details just after news headlines at half past 12. And in the last 24 hours, there hasn't been a huge amount of rain falling anywhere in WA. The most was 13 millimetres at Wanneroo. But parts of WA's Great Southern Region are now suffering significantly from water damage. Kim Parsons farms at Jerramungup and Ongarup roughly 150 kilometres northeast of Albany. He says his Ongarup property has been hardest hit, with almost the entire crop being affected and about 60% completely ruined. Jerramungup Farm's not too bad. The crops are um, reasonably advanced, certainly could do with some more urea on them. But um, when we travel across to the Ongarup lease country, that's um, you know it's flat and very much waterlogged and crops and uh, absolutely terrible over there. What sort of things are you noticing in Ongarup that you aren't seeing in Jerramunga? Oh, just the waterlogging. Like it's a, it's just the low lying country that we lease over there. It's just the nature of the of the particular farm. It's, and probably had a lot more rain. Where it's a Jerramungup country, it's a lot more undulating and um, the crop was probably up and established a little bit earlier. So it certainly handled the, um, the rain a lot better than what the Ongrup place has. If you had to put a percentage on the amount of damage that's been done, where would you place it? Oh, well, the Ongrup farm, the, um, the crop over there is very high. Like it's nearly, nearly all of the crops affected up to 100%, but uh, most of it, well over 60% will be gone. There's no doubt about that, whereas the Jerramungup stuff has um, certainly held on a lot better. It's got some weather damage, but it's certainly um, nothing compared to the low-lying stuff that we got around on the on the lease block. We put urea on the canola earlier on, but all the canola's sort of been totally waterlogged and wished we hadn't put urea on because that's been well and truly wasted because the crop is not salvageable at the moment, I wouldn't have thought. And the barley over there is certainly struggling because it's just had so much water and been underwater for a long, long periods of time. 
And have you had much trouble with machines in the past uh, past couple of uh, days and weeks? In the, in the past few days, we've had uh, most things bogged, just trying to remove some sheep around to do a bit of tailing. But uh, we, we got a, a track machine in with a three-point linkage spreader and got over the country at Jeremunga with that to spread some urea, but certainly couldn't do it at Ongrup. We've seen he's gone on his way. There's no way after the 20 mils last night that we'd be back on it for a, a long time, I wouldn't have thought. And that's even in the absence of any more rain, which certainly seems like it could be on the horizon. Amazing how they managed to predict rain this year, and, and they, we get it every time they um, they sort of predict it. Last year, they, we couldn't buy rain, but uh, it's just the nature of the beast, isn't it? Fred, so how are the sheep looking at the moment? No, sheep have held up surprisingly well up till now, and uh, one thing we haven't had to do is cart water or too much feed, whereas the last three years we've been carting water, so it's um, certainly safe to all that with all dams overflowing. But yeah, so there's probably 7,000 sheep on the farm at the moment. There is the odd bit of foot abscess showed up, but certainly not as bad as we've seen it in, in uh, past years. So, no, surprisingly well, but not to say that that won't change if we stay underwater like we are over there for much longer, but no, really good up till now. Are you able to get out and do much on the farm with things being the way they are? Oh, you don't feel like it at the moment because there's not much you can do. We, we've got jobs to be done, but oh, it's just too... Every time we move anywhere, you'll get bogged in vehicles. Motorbikes about the only way around most of it and doesn't give you a lot of drive to go out there just to get bogged enough to go and get towed out again. Jeremiah Farmer, Kim Parsons speaking to Angus McIntosh. 10 past 12 here on the Country Hour and Simo from Querreting just highlighting how wet it is. He says, haven't been able to put any fertiliser on my paddocks, even got my plane bogged. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to be part of the conversation on text this afternoon. In the last few weeks, the Esperance region has also had some waterlogging problems, along with frost and even hail. Monica Field is an agronomist in the area and says when it first hit a few weeks ago, some paddocks looked disastrous, but she thinks most of the crops will recover. Anywhere that flowers were out of canola, they've knocked them over and broken stems, broken leaves. Um, the lupins were pretty badly hit. They'd knocked flowers and in the really worst of it, it really, they were just stalks left. Yeah, it looked pretty bad because basically gone from a beautiful, nice green canopy of the canola to you can now see the ground and a lot of lesions and a lot of broken leaves and broken stems, definitely. So given what you saw, were you a little bit concerned that maybe there would be some yield penalty? Yeah, I think there potentially will. The canola obviously is in a better space to recover than the lupins. Lupins are just growing pretty slowly at the moment. It's pretty cold. They don't, they don't love growing in July in the <laughs> south, unfortunately. I know how good canola can recover will determine what happens in the next couple of months. I know both of the farms have some areas that were a little bit less heat hit, so they will have um, some comparisons, which is good. Do you think that the farmers will be surprised at how their crops do come back from this kind of event? Yeah, I saw one a couple of years ago and I was just gobsmacked and the recovery was much better than I thought. Like, There's obviously the capacity for other issues to go on. These are in areas where it's quite wet already, so that's the concern is that taking a heap of green leaf off and then we get a heap more rain and more um, waterlogging symptoms are worse and also just things like weeds in an open canopy. Yeah, it's hard to determine a yield. I mean, I don't envy the people that have to do that for the insurance agents, but I'm hoping they're pleasantly surprised when it 
a couple of months' time. So is there anything farmers can do if they do suffer a severe hail event to encourage their crops to recover or is there not really much they can do? They just have to sort of sit and wait. Not really, yeah. We had a look through. There's some data from Canada and stuff in regard to disease and there doesn't look to be a lot of um, advantages of putting on extra fungicides or anything like that. Maybe nitrogen if it's always if it's in a situation where waterlogging is going to be a problem as well, but suck it and see, I think. That's, you know, treat it like maybe the cows or the sheep got in a little bit late. It's about the only kind of analogy I can go to. And I guess that is why people have insurance and we have that cover. At least it's something that can be insured for, which is, I know it's not, it's not nice to have your crop do that, but that's a little bit of peace of mind, I guess, yeah. Esperance-based agronomist Monica Field with Tara DeLangraft, 14 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Shortly, just taking a look at all the work that's being done by the Australian wine industry and individuals within the industry, the winemakers themselves, just looking around the world, trying to find other markets to China, basically, with those huge tariffs currently on the wine, Australian wine going into China. There is uh, big moves going on to try and find replacement markets. First, though, member for the agricultural region, Steve Martin, has joined calls for the state government to reduce the amount of wild sandalwood being harvested from WA's rangelands. Late last year, 12 groups and individuals involved in the sandalwood industry signed a letter to a number of ministers calling for the Forest Products Commission to reduce the amount of native wood harvested in WA. And they argued current harvest levels risked markets and environmental st- sustainability. Steve Martin is the Shadow Minister for Forestry and says with plantation sandalwood harvest just beginning, now is the time to reduce the wild wood take. There are limited tonnes in the world market. And at the moment, our plantation sector is coming on stream, which is a good thing. I've watched those trees grow in my area for the last 15 to 20 years. They're about to be harvested. At the same time, the Forest Products Commission are harvesting wildwood. And as you'd imagine, there's competition in that market and there's a risk of an oversupply, which will put pressure on those prices for the private sector. The FPC oversees the harvesting of the wildwood in the state and it's one of WA's oldest industries. So why should the wildwood harvest change now? Well, it, it needs to change because it, it, they've known this, this plantation wood was coming on stream. This hasn't crept up on anyone. This is a slow process. They're very slow-growing trees, as everyone knows, and it's about to happen. So if the private investment in that sector is going to be able to make a return and hire people and create jobs in the wheat belt, which is a wonderful thing, they need to make uh, a return and they need that price to be strong. So if the FPC are competing as a government entity in that market and it is putting downward pressure on prices, it shouldn't be the private sector that backs off. I believe it should be the government sector, which is in effect what the FPC is. At the moment, about 2,500 tonnes of wildwood is harvested each year. And off the top of my head, I think the split is 50-50 deadwood to greenwood. What do you think those figures need to do? Where do we need to scale back the harvest to? Uh, you would do it in a staged manner. And, and the private part of this industry are telling me that there, there is scope for wildwood harvest, quite clearly. But it's, it's, it's the level 
so I don't want to put a number on it. The industry will, will have a better gauge on that. Um, I'm hoping the forestry minister has a better gauge on that. But it definitely needs to come back, and it probably needs to come back quite quickly because we're at that stage in the, the harvesting of those private plantations where investment needs to be made. If that investment's going to take place, they, they need a bit of a security of price. Now, they're in the, the same business that every exporter's in. It's an export market. Prices go up and down. They're aware of that. But if there's a government trigger to putting pressure on those prices, that's that's just not appropriate. We have heard from WA Sandalwood Plantations. They're one of the, the major players in the WA's plantation sector that they believe that wildwood harvesting should be reduced to basically only Indigenous groups. Do you support that concept? I do. There isn't much of a wildwood market in any other places than, than those areas where Indigenous groups do have access to that land. So I think that's appropriate. The flip side of this conversation, though, is that even though it's CFPC which oversees harvesting, marketing, sale, that sort of thing, it's still someone's job to go out and actually harvest that wildwood if they secure the contract to do that. So in essence, are you advocating for them to basically lose that part of their income? I'm not necessarily, but that wildwood sandalwood is is not going away. So that's a resource that'll sit there for some time. The number of hectares in in the plantation industry in Western Australia, which was planted 15 to 20 years ago, is not enormous. So I think we have an opportunity to back off on the FPC harvesting of wildwood. And let's face it, this particular state government don't need to make a profit at the moment. They're about to announce a five billion dollar surplus later this year so if if anyone has to make a profit and i have to choose it would be the private sector particularly in this 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 industry so i think it's appropriate that for a while for a number of years uh, while we have access to plantation sandalwood in wa and it's not a huge resource while we do uh, that the the government part of that that market backs off and and we give the the private sector effectively an opportunity to make make a meaningful reward out of that business Shadow Minister for Forestry and Member for the Agricultural Region, Steve Martin, with Joe Prendergast. The Forestry Minister, Dave Kelly's office, says prior to losing office, the former Liberal National Government set the harvest limit for wild sandalwood at 2,500 tonnes a year. And this limit applies for the period July 2016 until the end of December 2026. Under the McGowan government, Forest Products Commission's wild sandalwood harvest quota has already been reduced to a maximum of 80% of the total wild sandalwood harvest quota, which is roughly 2,000 tonnes a year. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, global demand for sandalwood oil has decreased. And in response to the decreased demand, the Commission is not harvesting to its full quota and will continue to harvest below quota for the foreseeable future. The Minister's office says the McGowan government is committed to conducting a review into the industry and to ensuring the industry is sustainable into the future. And an expression of interest calling for independent consultants to conduct the review will be released in due course. 20 past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. The latest report from ABES says the export value of Australian wine could be $480 million lower by 2025 unless new markets are found or existing markets grow. 
and it's all due to China's anti-dumping measures on Australian wine. ABES Executive Director Dr Jared Greenville says duties ranging from 116 to 218% basically puts an end to exports of bottled wine to China. The consequences that really flow from being locked out of China's market is that our exports need to find places in, in other markets and in particular in our existing markets. And what we, f- we find is that really without additional efforts to either open new markets or to really build brands in those existing markets, we're looking at only measurably space for about 60% of that wine that was initially destined for China being sold into those existing other markets. So what do you think needs to be done to assist that other 40%? So there's a range of options really available that can grow exports. Um, a lot of it is in the hands of the producers themselves and exporters. And, and what we've seen is that, you know, when we look at wine value and you know, dollars per litre in different markets is that China was was high on that list. So we sold a China, wine into China at close to $11.50 per litre and it averages around $5 in other markets. A lot of that's because of recognition of brand and value of brand and, and the like and that reputation of Australian wine as, as premium wine. And so there's things can be done to try and build that, but that's a longer-run investment. The other thing that can be done is really to try and find new markets and connect, I guess, Australian wine growers and, and wine producers with consumers that they haven't yet had a, a relationship with. The latest Wine Australia export report found that exports increased to the UK, Singapore, South Korea, Malaysia, Taiwan and Hong Kong by a combined $240 million. Now, this didn't offset the decline in exports to mainland China, but it's a a step towards developing those markets. Uh, How much capacity do you think there is in those additional markets to soak up some of that 40%? So when we just look at, I guess, this year since the tariffs have been in place, We've seen that about 30% of the wine that was destined for China has found its place in, in other markets. And so there is capacity in those markets, certainly to grow our share of wine and our level of exports. The key point is that it's going to be difficult. We're already in there and we're already competing against both domestic and other international suppliers. And so trying to find a way to grow in an already competitive market is, is difficult. And that's where price comes in. And so when we think about you know 60% of that wine finding places in other markets, it's really on a value sense. And so trying to recuperate that extra value out of other markets is going to be difficult. It's not going to be impossible, but it does require a fair bit of effort. ABES, Dr Jared Greenville with Cassie Huff. 23 past 12. The CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, Tony Battelline, says the report is pretty accurate and highlights the challenges the industry is facing. The report points out very accurately that in the short term, with our exports to China closed, we've got a real recovery process. We will recover some of that ground in the medium term with market diversification, but it's going to be really difficult to overcome the whole of the loss that we have. So that sort of reduction by 2025 seems pretty accurate to me. Uh, Hopefully we can make it less, but at the moment we've got a lot of work to do. And of course, issues selling wine flows through to the growers who are producing the grapes and the forecast is that uh, loss of production could be $67 million annually and in the northwest Victoria alone it could be $11 million. What's your message to growers who are hearing that news? Oh, my message to both growers and winemakers is get out there and talk to each other now. Particularly if you haven't got a contract, you need to work out how you can best get a contract. 
and every winemaker needs to tell their growers what they think is going to happen so that those contracts are rigid and people have no surprises when you come to selling your grapes and people know what the quality is like and they know there's prices they're going to get. So I think there's a lot of communication that has to happen. Since the beginning of the year, 30% of the wine that would have been destined for China has been redirected. Can you paint a picture as to how much work goes on to, to find these new homes? Yeah, there's an enormous amount of work. So the Australian wine industry is already diversified. We export to over 100 countries around the world. But what you need to do to build markets is you need to build trust, you need to get your product in front of people, and they need to have somewhere to sell it. And, of course, the problem we have is COVID-19. People cannot get to another country to sell your product. So everything is done virtually, and people rely on the strength of their brand. So it's really hard to go to a new country. We've had a lot of organisations working together, both state governments and federal governments, putting money in for market diversification, and the industry's rallying around to try and get those. But it's hard work. It takes time and it takes money to build those markets. Obviously, the United Kingdom is going very strongly, particularly at the announcement of the in-principle agreement, the free trade agreement. Uh, the United States is the biggest market that we are underweight in, and there are real opportunities if we can get into the US, but it's very, very difficult. But in, the, in Asia... South Korea is going extremely well. Vietnam, Thailand and Singapore are showing a lot of promise. And, of course, Japan has always been a solid market that we think is growth. So we're investing and will invest over the next few years quite a lot of money in these markets and a lot of time and we'll work collaboratively throughout Australia to try and grow those markets. But there is potential, just hard to get anything that will counteract the big loss we've had in China. Tony Batterleen from Australian Grape and Wine with Kelly Hollingworth. 26 past 12, off to the newsroom for an update shortly and then taking a look at the weather around Western Australia with a cross to the Bureau of Meteorology. Before that, though, startup company Eden Brew is trying to develop an animal-free milk. And the really interesting thing about this research is it's being done with Australia's largest milk cooperative, Norco. David Courton has the story. Eden Brew has used CSIRO technology to produce a brew in the lab that can be used in a traditional dairy processing plant to produce something that looks and functions just like cow's milk, but it won't come from a cow, and it'll be low in allergens, lactose-free and environmentally friendly. The process produces the same proteins found in cow's milk, but without the cow. Eden Brew CEO Jim Fader says it puts the company ahead of the competition in the global race to produce animal-free milk. With a lot of people getting into this space, a lot of innovation getting into this space, then you really need that first mover advantage. I believe that we sit at a world-leading position with the casein micelle production ability that we've got. There are other players out there looking at dairy, and, and certainly their focuses are on cheese, and we're focusing on milk, which we believe is, is the hardest to achieve, but yet holds the biggest impact. So we're running hard at milk. About $4 billion has already been invested into the area globally. Michael Hampson from Norco says it could be a good investment for his co-op members if they can get a jump on the competition. There are other companies, Impossible Foods, um, Perfect Day, like a number of these very large organisations that have raised, you know, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars of, of capital. They are in, in this race to be able to produce an animal-free milk. You know, we're very well advanced and we're doing it in a, in a particular way where we're creating the actual micelle that holds a lot of the nutrients around the proteins. 
and that's that is the the deep tech and science that um, the CSIRO and their team of experts have, have really brought to the to the venture. Michael Hampson says they're focusing on milk instead of other dairy products, partly because it's hard to do, and the market for dairy alternatives in coffee is huge if they succeed. We're very far advanced. We have product at froths, so you can make cappuccinos, and that's one of the key things that um, you know current plant-based milk people would sit there and say as a complaint of their product, A, the flavour and texture and the fact that you can't have a decent coffee with it. So we see that you know this product is doing all these things that others are still trying to, to replicate. So how will the processing side work? Basically, Eden Brew will provide um, the components for the milk and we will combine those into our factory and, and bottle the milk. And what do you reckon it will come out like? Like if I had two bottles and one was cow's milk and one was the animal-free milk, what would the comparison be like? At the moment, we're obviously still in uh, in prototype development. It's it's a fairly close representation. It's much better than the plant milks that are that are available at the moment. Certainly, um, this product is aimed at, at at mainly those that that aren't consumers of dairy. If you're wondering why there's so much money going into producing animal-free milk, it's because consumers are concerned about the impact of cows on the environment, and a large percentage of the population are either lactose intolerant or allergic to milk. I asked Jim Fader if this product would make a difference. It's not allergen-free, but it is low allergen. So there is allergenicity around whey proteins and casein proteins. So we won't be allergen-free, but we are lactose-free, and that is, that is certainly the largest and best-known allergy with dairy products. There are people out there that, that choose to avoid dairy, either because of the environmental footprint or animal welfare issues or allergenicity, and I think we help in that regard on those three issues. How much less water, for example, because water is one of the big concerns, isn't it? It needs a lot of water to produce a litre of milk. It will be a fraction, less than 10 litres of water per litre of milk. So why are dairy farmers backing the tech? And could animal-free milk lead to the demise of the dairy industry? Michael Harvey from Norco doesn't think so. I don't believe so. And this project was always going to commercialise. The science is, you know, from the science community and investment community, it's just too good to keep on a shelf. So what what we think is the best outcome here for farmers is that there may be a you know, significantly high-valued organisation that comes out of the Eden Brew. And, you know, we sort of sit there with our, our 300 members having a, having a stake of, of 25% in what could be a you know, an organisation that's valued at hundreds of millions of dollars. So we see that this is an opportunity for our farmers to benefit from a market that's happening anyway, is growing anyway, is going to continue to grow anyway, um, and then taking that value to to give back to our members so that they can invest in their dairy operations. Rabobank analyst Michael Harvey isn't surprised to see Norco getting into bed with an animal-free startup company. It's part of a worldwide trend for dairy companies. Most dairy companies have got a plant-based offering. What you've also seen globally is a lot of dairy companies are looking to invest in alternative technologies, and this is part of that. So absolutely, you know, it's an interesting development in that respect, and it, you know, it's not surprising that you're seeing a traditional or conventional dairy company looking at that alternative. You don't think that people are going to start drinking uh, animal-free milk and leave the cows behind? 
No, there's absolutely consumer demand and they'll take some of the market. But I still think there's going to be a significant market size for, for conventional dairy and, and a lot of there's still a lot of growth potential for conventional dairy products selling into, you know, emerging markets offshore and so forth. So, yeah, absolutely, you know, these products have got a, a place in the market, but we don't think they're going to completely overwhelm the consumer in terms of taking market share. Sean Morgan from Dairy Farmer Lobby Group Dairy Connect is concerned about the proposal. I find it interesting that a, a dairy organisation of any sort would be looking at moving into animal-free products and even referring to those as milk, which they're clearly not, hence brings in issues of truth in labelling, if nothing else. I can understand, certainly, corporate processes who have a responsibility to shareholders deciding that they would see some benefit to going into alternative plant-based drinks but it really does raise some issues when the largest dairy cooperative also is looking at doing animal-free, especially when its members are all dairy farmers. Sean Morgan from Dairy Farmer Lobby Group Dairy Connect talking to David Corton about some of his concerns with a new animal-free milk being developed with the help of Norco, Australia's largest milk cooperative. Do you think that's weird that that big co-op is spending all that money and really keen to be part of that research to develop an animal-free milk. You can text through 0448 922 604. 27 to 1, Jonathan Beale is here. What's making news headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. In the headlines, the federal government's COVID-19 disaster payment is being increased to a maximum of $750 a week for people affected by the lockdown in Greater Sydney. Currently, workers who lose 20 hours or more of work in a week will be eligible for a $600 payment. New South Wales has recorded 177 new coronavirus cases today and Sydney's lockdown is to be extended by another four weeks. Police are urging motorists to use caution after three cars were found submerged in rivers and floodwaters across WA. Southwest Police say the owner of a Toyota Prado, which was found in the Murray River near Waruna last night, is safe and well. Two other vehicles were found in, found rather, in floodwaters at Peaceville, north of Wagen, yesterday. Police are yet to locate the driver of one of the vehicles, a grey Mitsubishi Triton utility. And the coach of WA Olympic gold medalist Annabelle McIntyre says the crew's intense training program prepared them for victory in the women's fours rowing event at Tokyo. McIntyre, Lucy Stephan, Rosemary Popper and Jessica Morrison beat the Netherlands and Ireland in this morning's final. The 24-year-old's coach, Jamie Hewlett, says McIntyre kept a cool head in pretty atrocious weather conditions. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you very much for that. It is 25 to 1. Uh, my name's Ross Aridi. I'm at Kelly Station. Um, I make sure that I listen to the Country Hour every day and listen to Belinda Baraschetti. On ABC Radio WA. Before the news at one o'clock, a wrap of the Catanning sheep market today. Tracy Kilner with the details for you. And then taking a closer look at some commodity prices. Uh, nickel and copper prices are up. Fertiliser prices are up also. And then taking a look at this. Well, it's in the pipeline. It should be up and running in a few months' time. WA's first downstream processing graphite plant to be built in Collie. Details of that shortly. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Matt Bodehoven, what's the picture around the Southwest Land Division this afternoon? 
Yeah, good afternoon, Belinda. Um, so, well, during today, um, yeah, we've got a ridge through uh, northern parts of the state and a vigorous westerly flow over the uh, southwest land division. So showers over the western parts uh, during Wednesday. But into Thursday, we've got another strong cold front uh, coming up and then I'll across the southwest during the day. We have a sheep farmer's warning issued for Thursday. Uh, showers over western parts extending throughout uh, during the morning. Thunderstorms possible. Southwest line, Mandra to Bremer Bay. Uh, with that uh, strong cold front, we'll have a severe weather warning issued. We'll issue that this afternoon. So that'll be for uh, damaging winds up to 100 kilometres per hour, sort of uh, southwest line, Perth to Hopeton. Rainfall wise, looking for around uh, up to 20 millimetres in the southwest and lower west districts, up to 10 millimetres in the western parts of the Great Southern, southwest parts of the central wheat belt. Uh, in the inland areas, up to 5 millimetres in the eastern parts of the Great Southern and up to 3 millimetres in the uh, eastern parts of the Central Wheat Belt. On Friday, that cold front will weaken and contract into the bite. A cold air mass will move over the western parts in the evening. Uh, the severe weather warning will probably still be going along the south coast uh, during the morning. Um, showers throughout, they'll ease off uh, during the day and also clear through southern inland parts in the evening. Thunderstorms possible over the western parts, uh, south of Durian Bay and along the south coast. Rainfall-wise, fairly similar uh, near the western south coast, up to 20 millimetres, also through the lower west and the southwest. Around the uh, western parts of the Great Southern, the southwest parts of the Central Wheat Belt could see up to 8 millimetres. 5 uh, millimetres possible through the inland parts or eastern parts of the Central Wheat Belt there. A little bit of small hail around uh, southwest of uh, Perth to Esperance uh, during the day. On Saturday, another strong cold front will reach the Capes in the evening. Um, showers over the northern and western parts and along the south coast, uh, easing for a period during the day and then increasing with the passage of that new strong cold front uh, during the evening. And that'll be uh, southwest of a line during Bay to Hopeton in the evening. Thunderstorms possible uh, over the lower west and southwest. Chance of snow in the morning uh, near the Stirling Ranges. Um, hail again over southern parts. Rainfall wise, again, it's fairly similar sort of figures, maybe just a little bit less, around up to 18 millimetres in the lower west and southwest, um, 5 millimetres uh, through adjacent inland areas of the western parts of the Great Southern and the southwest parts of the Central Wheat Belt. On uh, Sunday, uh, that cold front will move along the south coast and into the bite and a ridge of high pressure will develop in its wake. Uh, showers extending throughout in the morning, then contracting to coastal parts in the evening. Thunderstorms possible near the south coast. Uh, snow also a possibility again, though uh, conditions will be fairly windy, so you, you probably don't want to climb up the hill to find out if there's snow uh, there on Sunday morning. Uh, Rainfall-wise, generally uh, rainfall figures less than 5 millimetres there, on Sunday through most parts, uh, though in the lower west could see up to 10 to 15 millimetres and also near the, the south coast. What have you got for northern and eastern parts, Matt? Yeah, on Thursday, showers will creep into southern parts of the Gascoigne, also maybe in the far west of the Pilbara um, and also western parts of the Gascoigne as well, also into the southwest parts of the goldfields. Uh, and on Friday, showers will extend a little bit further Inland through most parts of the Gascoigne into the goldfields through the Eucla, uh, western parts of the Pilbara there. 
Uh, on Saturday, showers over most southern parts of the state, uh, so into the south interior there, um, and again through the western parts of the Pilbara. And uh, Sunday again, uh, showers over most of the gold fields through the Eucla, southern parts of the Gascoyne, and may creep into the far south of the, the interior there. And as you mentioned earlier, Matt, there's a bit going on, so maybe recap the warnings. Yeah, for the strong wind warnings today, uh, we've got strong wind warning all the way from Calberry to Islight Bay with a gale warning around the Lewin and Albany coast. Also, I've uh, had a prolonged period of dangerous surf around the coastal areas and high tides, so that'll persist for over the next four days as well. Um, we've got a flood warning for uh, Avon River, uh, Swan River, Murray and Harvey River catchments and uh, sheep farmers warning, uh, which is mainly for uh, tomorrow. That's around the southwest, south coast on the Great Southern Forecast Districts. Great. Thank you for going through that, Matt. It is 19 to 1. And Richard Hudson here now with a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, not much at all to get through in the northern and eastern forecast districts. Um, in fact, only one figure, and that was in the Gascoigne region. Shark Bay Airport recorded five. Uh, apart from that, yeah, nothing else. In the southwest land division forecast districts, the uh, we go back to five and above today because the rainfall figures are a lot lower. In the central west, there were lots of one to three mils, but the only ones at five and above was New Norcia with eight and Tabletop seven. Then in the lower west, Bindoon seven, Jaredale five, Lake Chittering also had five, and same for Mulyabini. And Mushay, Mundaring 6, Pierce of the Raff Base 5, Tamala Park 8 and Wanneroo 5. And then in the southwest, Beadlup 7, Brunswick Junction and Bunbury 5, Chapman Hill 7, Kawaram up 5, Darden up at one of the Deep Herd stations also 5 mils. And the same for Jindong and Margaret River, 5 mils. Northcliffe, 8. Pemberton, 6. Rosabrook, 7. Scott River and Shannon, 5. And Witchcliffe, also 5. Then in the southern coastal region, Albany Airport, 7. Shane Beach, 9. Denbarker, 5. Denmark, 6 to 7. King River, 8. And the Duke recorded 7 mils. In the central wheat belt, lots of places recorded 1 to 3 mils. The only ones above that, Gabon had seven mils over two days and Nungarin had five mils. And then in the Great Southern region, uh, nothing more than three mils recorded at Boyan up uh, Boddington North. That's it. Great. Thank you for that, Richard. 17 to 1 here on the Country Hour. A wrap of the Catanning sheep market not far away. Also taking a look at base metal prices. They're on the way up. And also... In the first quarter of this year, fertiliser prices jumped 24%. Business analyst David Hanlon thinks most fertilisers will be expensive for at least the next six months. And he says there are a number of factors at play creating this strong demand. We've seen incredible increases in demand in the Northern Hemisphere, first of all, so that precedes us. India just had a massive crop coming through. The US and Europe had good crops. And now we're seeing the scent of the heat wave knocking crops about in the US, but they got the crop in. So they needed um, all the basics to get that started. The second thing in the Southern Hemisphere, Brazil has been increasing its crop capacity by about 5% per annum for the last four or five years or sorry, 8% per annum, really good growth. And that's increasing demand. Both India and Brazil have been historically huge importers of fertiliser. 
If you look at supply, during the last half of last year and early this year, we've had two major urea factories go offline. The second thing that we've seen is that there's been a huge increase in gas input, gas prices. And that's because of the exceptionally cold winter in the Northern Hemisphere. So that's made the supply two drivers of increasing the supply, Hugo. The third one is shipping prices. Now, freight prices uh, for fertiliser have doubled in the uh, first six months of this year. We've had delay, you know, disruptive to, to shipping supplies. COVID did that. So there's a logistic logjam there. Whereabouts were those major urea factories? The main one was in Saudi that happened. We've had some breakdowns in Malaysia. So we've just seen those couple of things happen. And hence, you know, in WA now, we're seeing them really seriously looking at uh, building a, uh, a urea plant there to actually capitalise on these high prices and, and mm. to get some local demand. I was just talking um, the other day because I'm redoing a project for a client at the moment and I was talking to a, a good accumulator for big rural clients of fertiliser. Those guys who locked in, and I'm talking locked in January or earlier for their winter fertiliser, are doing a lot better than those who are scrambling now to pick up because it's just not the product in the pipeline that merchants here, retailers here, can get it out to them. So, David, how do you see this panning out from your perspective? Crystal balls are always uh, something to be wary of. And it's so easy to be um, the expert in hindsight. But I follow most of the the pundits to, to try and keep an eye on it. And when we look at... Probably the World Bank are softer on prices. Certainly Rabo, when they gave their global outlook in January this year, expected prices to soften or stabilise in the second quarter and soften thereafter this year. Well, we were already in quarter three and seeing the spikes that generated this conversation. There's another global rater that I follow, who Finch rated. Just um, of three weeks ago, they have revised all their ratings for both the rest of this year, next year, and coming back to 2023. So it's really interesting. While the World Bank expects things to be pretty well back to normal next year, we see that the Finch ratings, there are global ratings on a whole lot of different commodities, they're still seeing that prices will be significantly above but lower than the second half of this year in 2022 for quite a few of of the commodities. Urea, they expect perhaps to come back. Ammonia is going to still be up higher than it is um, was at the beginning of this year. We're going to see uh, rock phosphate higher. We're going to see potash perhaps dropping back at the end of 2022. Business analyst for Right Mind, David Hanlon, with his thoughts on global fertiliser prices, speaking to Hugo Ricard-Bell. 13 to 1. In the resources sector, the international nickel price has rallied to seven-year highs. Earlier this week, the base metal ticked over the 19500 US dollars per tonne mark 
on the London Metals Exchange, the highest level since around 2014. And after hitting a decade high earlier in the year, copper has also bounced back to over 9,500 US dollars a tonne. Commonwealth Bank mining and energy economist Vivak Dar says the prices for both commodities are being driven up by supply concerns and policy decisions in China. When we talk about copper, I think one of the major drivers very recently has been the flooding that we've seen in China. Now, it's affected the central province of Henan, and that's a key production hub of copper. And so because of those supply concerns, we've seen um, those shortage risks, particularly in China, become quite large. And in fact, we've seen the copper premium in China lift quite a bit in, in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, we're certainly seeing tightness in that market develop. The other factor to consider is that when you have flooding like that, you are going to have some rebuilding of infrastructure. And that's another key reason why we've seen copper prices do well, particularly for copper required in the power sector. So I think for copper, those have been the factors very recently that have played into the higher prices. For nickel, it's actually more on the policy front in our view from what's coming from China. So one of the key reasons why nickel prices have rebounded so much, particularly recently, comes down to the fact that stainless steel prices in China have really jumped. And that's on the back of expectations that in the second half of this year, we're going to see uh, steel output cuts as China really tries to target a cut in emissions. And to put that into context, Look, stainless steel accounts for about 70% of global nickel demand. What does these rising prices um, mean for miners over in Australia who are looking at you know, nickel and copper exploration? We're certainly seeing interest, particularly in, in copper and nickel. Like, yes, there are short-term drivers at play, but overall the thesis over the, the longer term is, is this push to decarbonisation will lift copper and nickel demand. And that's something that will encourage exploration and, and mining activity. And, and copper is a, is a good one because of the base metals that's certainly seen a lot of exploration interest. And that's certainly one which you look at the supply pipeline, it's very, very thin. We're only talking three years worth of demand growth left in the, in the copper supply chain. And if we do decarbonize more aggressively than the status quo, you can quickly get into a shortage in, in copper. And so I think copper is one of those green metals which really can move into shortage relatively quickly given the current dynamics at play. There have been some analysts uh, predicting that copper prices could reach as much as, you know, 11500 US dollars a tonne in the next 12 months. Now, that would be a, a record high for some time, I imagine. What are your predictions telling you about just how high uh, copper and, and nickel prices could reach? Look, our, our view is still leveraged on, on what's going to happen in China. And all the indications in the last few months have been that China is prioritizing, trying to contain financial risks as opposed to prioritizing economic growth. And so we are seeing an engineered slowdown in their commodity intensive sectors. And because of that view, we do think that prices will eventually ease and very gradually because, you know, ex-Chinese demand is still quite strong. But for us to see prices lift increasingly over the next six to 12 months, like some analysts have out there, 
we would need two things to occur. One would be Chinese demand to remain resilient and strengthen more than we expect. And two, we see a far greater push towards decarbonization. So electric vehicle uptake policies around EV adoption in, in multiple jurisdictions would have to start becoming increasingly clear and, and, and obvious. And those would be the two key drivers that we pay attention to, to see a sustained lift in particularly copper and nickel. Commonwealth Bank economist Vivek Dow with Courtney Fowler. 8 to 1. Well, WA is on track to have its first downstream processing graphite plant in Collie, about 200 kilometres southeast of Perth. WA-based company International Graphite will run the facility, which is expected to create 40 full-time jobs once it's fully operational. Chairman Phil Hurst says the Collie location is the perfect spot for the plant. Really linked in with the planned shutdowns at Muja Power Station coming up. That meant that there was a need for extra employment in this part of the world and so that suited us fine in terms of having access to skilled people, to operators, to maintenance personnel and enabling us to be able to set up here. We also, for our future facilities, need really cost-competitive power and we believe that we can get that here in the Collie area. What will the process in Collie be for this graphite? We will be importing partly processed material and here we'll be value-adding to it and we'll be producing products that will be used worldwide. For example, some of them will be used for uh, mobile phones and computers as heat sinks. Some will be used in combustible or non-combustible cladding for buildings. Some will be used in paints and polymers and lubricants. But the real target for us downstream is the battery anode material business. And if you're value adding here in Collie, where will the raw graphite be coming from? Uh, it'll come from international sources. There are uh, a number of sources uh, around the world uh, that mines graphite and that's where it'll be coming from. How long will it take? Can you talk us through the timeline of this project? We've currently ordered and it's on, on the ship our research and development equipment and that will be here within two months. We'll be setting that up in this facility. We'll then be ordering our first production equipment and that'll be micronising and foils uh, equipment. That will be here within, let's say, six months from now. We expect it to be here. Uh, we'll install that and then we'll start the operation at that time. By the end of next year, we would expect to be ramping up into a production phase. And in that production phase, how much graphite products can we expect to be coming out of this facility? Initial stage will be 280 tonnes a year of foil and 500 tonnes a year of uh, micronised material, ramping rapidly up to 1,000 tonnes of micronised and 560 tonne of foil. Now, this is the first of its kind in WA. What does this mean for the state and the broader Australian graphite industry? It, it's very much technology-based, so it's really a new business for Australia. We're departing from the traditional suppliers of graphite around the world. We're finding that customers are wanting 
better security of supply and they're wanting to get their uh, materials uh, from countries that have, offer security and safety and also countries that can offer sustainability and environmental protection. And is there any prospect of future development where the graphite won't come from overseas and might come from a domestic market? Yes, we would like to see that ourselves. There is a well-advanced project in the southwest here, and when that is developed, then we will be looking at that as our feedstock. Phil Hurst is the chairman of International Graphite, speaking to Holly Edwards-Smith. Four minutes to one and still on the topic of mining, Roy and HG have been very happy to see mining being appreciated as part of the Olympics coverage on television. It's drawn people back to free-to-air. Ratings through the roof, Ratings through the roof, free-to-air. FTA. It's back. I know. It's back. Now, it's like I, the book. Yeah, I haven't seen free-to-air for so long. Mm. It's been fantastic. I, I, the ads have been a revelation to me. I had no idea so many of our athletes have been been inspired by the mining industry. Yeah. The mining industry. Yeah. Actually, I didn't realise how much that put in, put into Australian athletes. There are some athletes who are ambassadors for Australian mining. This is just fantastic to get the message out there, especially here in Japan. They love our stuff. They love the stuff we dig up. And there's great opportunities for Aussies to mention the sorts of stuff you can get that we're digging up. Not only to the Japanese, but people all from all from, walks of life. From all corners in, of the earth. Including China. Oh, China, are they here? They're here. I hope they're not bringing our wine with them. You can hear more of Roy and HG on Dodging Armageddon, three o'clock every weekday for the Olympics. And you can also catch it as a podcast whenever you like on the ABC Listen app. To the markets now, and only 6,143 sheep and lambs were pinned for sale at Catanning today, so numbers down about 1,200 on last week. Tracy Kilner, I hear with the lower numbers, lamb prices picked up a bit today. Yes, lambs regained last week's fall with demand high for all categories with only fluctuations only on the older lambs. A quality run of heavy ewes offered remained firm with lighter weights carrying a fleece gaining with processor and restockers keen to secure. The best heavy lambs sold at $228 while the heaviest ewes made $268 a head. All regular processor buyers were in attendance with a large gallery of restocker and graziers on the rail. Lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold from $75 to $142. The under 18 kilo carcass weight crossbred lambs made from $122 to $152, while merino weather lambs in the same weights carrying a fleece made $174 a head. Lighter trade weight lambs sold for $144 to $185. Heavier tradies made from $164 to $194 a head. The heavyweight lambs made $210 while extra heavyweights returned $228 a head. Young Merino ewes sold for $90 to $250, depending on weight, with restocker interest. Light store ewes sold from $70 to $150 with a fleece. Heavier stores sold to $180 with a full fleece. 
Medium weight prime ewes weighing under 30 kilos carcass weight made from $160 to $256 a head. A good yarding of heavyweight ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight sold from $240 to $268. Heavy weathers made from $234 to $259, while young hoggett weathers returned $85 to $165 for lightweights, and heavier lines to processors sold from $170 to $205 a head. Mature rams made from $72 to $181, depending on weights, while ram lambs sold from $100 to $196 for heavy weights. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for that. In response to Australia's largest milk cooperative, Norco, now working on an animal-free milk product, Wendy in Cojanup says, if it's not from a mammal, it's not milk. White liquid could be paint. And this, stop calling it milk. It's not milk. It's juice if it comes from anything but a mammal. Well, that's what the co-op is calling it, milk. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.